This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our supporters at Patreon.com and by WNYC. New on the experiment, we're opening a Pandora's can, a spam can of worms, to uncover the power of America's favorite mystery meat. Spam has traveled around the world. It's inspired poetry, and it set in motion a union battle that would change the course of history. Spam, How the American Dream Got Canned, is a three-part series about food, work, and family on The Experiment from the Atlantic and WNYC studios. Listen wherever you get podcasts. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. A 1944 conference in Bretton Woods, New Hampshire, created some of today's most important economic institutions, the International Monetary Fund and the organization that became the World Bank. This order was built largely around the interests and ideas of the United States and its allies, many of which were empires holding much of the rest of the world under formally explicit imperial domination. The world has changed a lot since then. Dozens of countries fought and won battles for national independence from their colonial overlords. And the United States enjoys far less dominance in the world economy than it once did. But throughout the years, global domination of the world economy through financial power has persisted in different, complicated forms managed by economists, technocrats, and capitalists operating through and around these bread and woods institutions. On today's episode, leading economists Daniela Gabor and Dongo Sambasilla talk about how economies, money, and finance have been managed across national borders. They'll talk about what has changed since these orders were explicitly managed by imperial interests like the French and British empires, and also about what hasn't, from Bretton Woods to the Washington Consensus to today's Wall Street Consensus. And they will be talking about it with brilliant philosopher and past dig guest Femi Taiwo, who is guest hosting this episode for me today. I've got a lot of interviews that I'm really excited about coming up. I mentioned a bunch of them last week, including Maryam Kaba and Gio Maher, Kim Phillips-Fine, Destin Jenkins, Veronica Gago, Brenna Bandar. I've also just started reading two new books for interviews that I'll probably be doing sometime in March that are really so very excellent. The first is Left Behind, The Democrats' Failed Attempt to Solve Inequality by Lily Geismer, who I interviewed a while back about her stellar first book, Don't Blame Us, Suburban Liberals and the Transformation of the Democratic Party. Geismer's new book is about the rise of the new Democrats and Clintonism, and it's so good and something I've wanted to read about in more depth for a very long time. And then I'm also reading Margarita Fajardo's The World That Latin America Created, the United Nations Economic Commission for Latin America in the Development Era, a history of dependency theory, something that I've likewise been wanting to read more about forever. Anyhow, What we do at The Dig are these incredibly in-depth interviews on politics, history, and economics everywhere, from Ukraine to the U.S. to West Africa to China. And we can only do that because listeners, listeners just like you listening now, support us at patreon.com slash the dig. If you have been meaning to contribute but haven't yet, please take a moment to do so now. A contribution of any size will get you our weekly newsletter in your email inbox. If you contribute at least $10 a month, 
We will send you a book or books in the mail, a dig tote bag, or a dig coffee mug. Please take a quick moment to contribute now. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash the dig. We really do depend on your contributions. Even a small donation goes a very long way. Okay, here's Daniela Gabor and Dongo Sambasilla. Daniela Gabor is professor of economics and microfinance at the University of the West of England, Bristol, and has published on central banking and crisis, on the governance of global banks, in the IMF, and on shadow banking and repo markets. Dongo Sambasilla is a development economist and a founding member of the Collective for the Renewal of Africa, CORA. He frequently publishes on monetary policy, colonialism, and their intersection. He is a co-author of the book, Africa's Last Colonial Currency, the CFA Frank Story. I will link to some of both of their publications in the show notes. Dongo and Daniela, welcome to The Dig. I want to start with some basic concepts and history, since we'll need those to understand what's happening now and why the institutions that we're gonna spend all this time talking about are so important. So my first question is about history. Both of you take up economic issues on a multinational, sometimes even planetary scale, talking about things like the Wall Street consensus, global international development, or huge regions across multiple countries, like whatever this thing is that's called the Frank Zone or the Sterling Zone. And that's different from how a lot of policy conversations go in the United States, where we more often think about national government and individual countries, central banks, um, even when we're thinking about countries that aren't the global hegemon. So what do we gain from thinking about economics and politics at this scale that we might miss if we're only looking at the domestic level or the national level? I think the it is for me it is uh, imperative it's necessary um, to start from the global scale in trying to understand domestic politics or domestic macro macro financial developments simply because the countries we come from and the countries we study I'm I'm Romanian and Dongo is from Senegal um, the countries in the global south um, they have been. Uh, in, involved or they have been part of the global economic system or the global financial system in different ways historically, but we cannot understand domestic developments without understanding what, what is happening globally and without understanding patterns of integration into either international trade or, uh, or, or financial globalization. So, so to me, even if you study the U.S., you have to study the U.S. as, as the global hegemon in terms of providing the international reserve currency in terms of providing or, or supporting or, or driving certain patterns of colonialism and post-colonialism. So nothing can be understood as far as I'm concerned at, at, at national scale. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I share that same premise because, uh, well, when you come from, let's say, the kind of background, let's say, economics background, for example, de dependency theory, world system theory, uh, you know that you cannot understand uh, the specificity of underdevelopment, for example, in, in the global south, if you do not put that, let's say, uh, in the context of the global deployment of the capitalist logic. So that means necessarily you have to have a, a global approach. And that has been um, 
the kind of uh, methodology followed by, let's say, most thinkers from the global north, from the global south, interested in the issue of development, underdevelopment, etc. And the thing is also with what has been called the globalization in the 1990s, 2000s, and uh, for example, China joining the WTO, the World Trade Organization, etc. Most people have started to see the how countries uh, depend uh, on, on each other let's say um, financial links uh, trade links etc and also how the information circulates all, all of these things have made people aware that uh, we live in a let's say one economic system global economic system and at the national level you could have different way ways of adapting to this uh, let's say global framework, but you could not understand uh, global, what is happening domestically if you don't have an, an idea about the whole, which is not straightforward, yeah. I would, I would just add to that, it just occurred to me that also uh, for the last 30 years, 40 years in particular, the scope for sort of autonomous or national specific institutional development has reduced quite significantly. We more or less share the same institutional structures when it comes to the macroeconomy, and that increasingly replicate, replicate U.S.-based institutional structures. So we, we cannot understand, the even our own institutions, we cannot understand them without understanding the patterns through which and, and the, the way they, they sort of travel across borders and they are influenced by what is happening uh, abroad. Now, that makes sense, especially this last point about a kind of institutional mirroring that happens in different countries um, maybe based on the U.S. or perhaps other places. I want to follow up on a couple kinds of theory that Dongo mentioned, dependency theory, world systems theory. What are those kinds of theories and how they defended themselves against challenges from more mainstream economics? Well, uh, you, you see, you had, let's say, after the Second World War, uh, there had been a way of, uh, let's say, understanding uh, underdevelopment. And uh, this was, uh, let's say, um, epitomized by the work of, let's say, Walter William Rostow, the stage of economic growth. That means that, well, the story of the, um, let's say, what we call now the global south, and at that time it was the third world, is just the past of Europe, let's say, of, of Europe. So that there are a number of stages of economic development, and each society, uh, each stage will go through those, uh, those, um, those steps to, to become developed, etc. And there was a reaction against this type of, let's say, intellectual perspective on development and underdevelopment. And it came from the third world. When I say the third world, it's not necessarily third world intellectuals. It's not necessarily people based in the third world, but people thinking about the specificities of the economic problems of, of the third world. And you had, uh, let's say, at one point, what was called the structuralism, which was saying that, well, the global south is facing uh, deteriorating terms of trade, meaning that, well, in fact, there are... Um, prices for the imports tends to be relatively appreciating, tend to be higher than the prices for the, for the, for the exports. And this is not something sustainable, etc. And after that, you have a much more radical perspective uh, like dependency theory uh, saying that, well, uh, in fact, even if you want to do the type of policies uh, advocated by the, by the structuralists, for example, import substituting policies, that means that 
producing domestically some products which generally are imported that would only increase the dependency because while well, you need the technologies from the West, you need uh, their uh, finance from the West, etc. You see, so you had that kind of uh, intellectual perspective, and sometimes uh, the conclusion was that well, if you don't have a uh, socialist revolutionary exit from capitalism, it could not work. And you have a last trend with uh, world system theory, which has been developed mostly by Emmanuel Wallerstein, who's uh, an American sociologist, and who had this point of view that, well, uh, you have to say that capitalism is a kind of a world system. That means that, well, there are the number of elements which are united, and you have to see how this world system evolves historically through different periods, starting, for example, from the 15th century for example. And uh, it's an historical system that means that, well, uh, came to birth and also it has imminent laws, which uh, means that at one point there will be a final crisis, etc. So you have all those kind of uh, radical perspectives on the, what could help explain the coexistence of, let's say, wealth and poverty, uh, geograph- geographically speaking. You see, But those perspectives, or whatever the critics, criticism we might have against them, uh, they started from the idea that we have one world economy and you have to start at this scale to understand what is happening domestically. And that was a very powerful uh, insight. But I would, I would just add that they, they become increasingly marginalized, I think, for a variety of reasons, uh, mostly because they lost, you know, they lost the battle in the uh, battle of ideas as the Washington Consensus comes in and articulates a particular view of what it takes to to develop between uh, quotation marks, and simply because uh, the Washington Consensus had powerful institutions behind it, promoting it. So uh, you had this uh, kind of radical ideas about development uh, being sort of increasingly marginalized and studied in in a specialized sort of niche approaches in in development studies institutes. In Europe, for example, I studied in, in, in... in Holland, and I, 15 years ago, I did study um, dependency theory, but only as a historical approach to development, not as something relevant today. And I think now there is a um, a, a push to revive these um, uh, schools of thought and to try to sort of update them for for the historical circumstances we li- we have at the, at the present. Also, in part because uh, of the failure of the Washington Consensus as a as a sort of hegemon- uh, hegemonic project of of, of capital. So one thing I want to think about in general, but maybe first in a historical sense, is what the connection is between the kind of colonial aspects of the world system, imperial conquest and markets forged by those kinds of conquests, and these high intellectual questions that we're asking about the kinds of economic theory or theories of development or theories of stages of development that are part of dependency theory and world systems theory. This is something that uh, Dongo's book, Africa's Last Colonial Currency, takes up pretty centrally. It begins with this history of currencies and banking throughout much of West and Central Africa. In the book, a number of monetary systems get described that had been in place in African economic networks that predated and overlapped with European conquests, including um, what amounted to a cowrie zone, a community-regulated but regionally large money system in West Africa based on the exchange of cowrie shells. So how did these older monetary systems work? 
And how are the community relationships maintained by cowrie-based commerce different from what became possible as the French Empire expanded its economic influence? In fact, uh, most of those um, currencies were commodity currencies, and they were not used in a capitalist sense. That means with a purpose of accumulating uh, capital endlessly. But those were social institutions helping organize the community. And so they had beyond their use as instrument of payments, other uses, for example, religious uses, uh, other social uses, you, you see. So that means that they don't have this, um, I would say, atheistic <laughs> approach to, 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 to money and, and currency. The, the, the currencies themselves were not an object of accumulation, but rather uh, an institution that helped, let's say, organize better, let's say, living together. In, in some way. But uh, with colonialism, uh, you had another, uh, let's say, approach to, let's say, to money and currency issues because the objective was to restructure, let's say, those uh, territories in a way that uh, suits accumulation logic, let's say, the colonizers, the, the, the metropolises. Of what, what the metropolises wanted was, for example, people to work, uh, to produce, let's say, some raw materials needed for the industries in the metropolis. And uh, the metropolis needed also, because there was a strong, let's say, uh, rivalry between, let's say, different uh, colonizers having access to, to the markets of, uh, let's say, colonized uh, territories. So you have all those kind of logic, and uh, you could not, let's say, dominate those territories without having a control over their currency system, their, their, their banking system. So that was something really uh, important in the colonial project. And, uh, well, in some parts of Africa, this is still, uh, well, you see the legacies, for example, in, um, in the CFA foreign countries. So the focus of the book kicks in after 1795, which is when revolutionary France adopts the franc as its national currency. Um, and as you were just explaining, there's some kind of tight connection between regulating currency and regulating the economy more broadly. As you put it in the book, one of the main objectives of the European powers colonial enterprise in Africa was the appropriation of most of the continent's riches. The colonial powers had to control the circuits of production and exchange, which in turn requires controlling the currency. So we know the default regular story about colonialism is about expropriation of resources, land, oil. Why does colonial control and wealth draining require control over currency? Well, because if you have the, the control over your currency, uh, you have the control over what you produce, what you consume, and what you exchange. You see, for example, when the French uh, came in West Africa, the first thing they did was to prohibit uh, the imports of curries because curries are a shell uh, which you could find in the Indian Ocean. So they, they stopped that. And the second measure they took is that, well, you have to pay us taxes in our own, let's say, metropolitan currency, the franc. Uh, so that means that, well, in fact, they wanted through this um, uh, tax policy to create a demand for their own currency. And creating this demand for the current currency was a way of restructuring the economy. For example, if you would produce, I don't know, uh, food, they were not interested in producing food. They wanted cotton seed or cocoa or, let's say, mining products. So the way uh, they imposed their, their, their currency system was also a way of uh, making the people to produce the products desired by the metropole. 
And uh, in some ways, you could see that because the currency system was also linked with the, with the fiscal system, you could not uh, separate them, you see. And uh, both the currency system and the fiscal system had, for example, as uh, outcomes that uh, most people would leave their, their places to go to other places where they could find the cash to pay their, to pay their um, to pay their taxes, you know. So that means that the colonial system is a particular way of mobilizing domestic resources. People tend to forget that, but uh, the colonial system was a particular way of mobilizing domestic resources, but for the benefit of the metropolis. But you you needed to have the fiscal and the monetary uh, instruments. The banking system also played a very important role because it allows the uh, let's say the um, financial flows allows uh, also to finance some particular activities and to uh, avoid the financing of other, for example, activities that would, for example, create a competition with, uh, let's say, uh, capital from the metropolis. I want to bring Daniela in here because one of the things I've thought most about when preparing for this interview was the kind of contrast between the early development of French banking policy in West Africa, um, throughout Africa, I should say, um, and control over currency there and the kind of worldwide system we have now with international institutions, um, with things like the European Central Bank. So Daniela, would you say the same thing about the the present moment that maybe neo-colonial control and wealth draining involves control over currency or are things too different now from the more explicitly colonial era, is this kind of control over how resources get used impossible for modern countries in 2022? Well, I would I would say, thank you, that's, that's a very interesting question. And it just reminded me that uh, just before the podcast, Ndongo and I were talking about Mali and the way in which uh, Mali is now in a sense, the legacies of the of the colonial monetary and banking structures are so evident and so politically expedient for Macron and for France to use in order to to prevent or to to try to take control of of the sort of rather explosive political situation there. And I'll stop here talking about Mali because I don't know very much. This all I know is what Ndongo explained to me ten minutes before we started talking. But it, I think if if we can come back to this at, at some point, it is, Mali is a very interesting illustration of how there are uh, the, the countries in Africa, but elsewhere uh, as well. Uh, continue to to struggle against uh, this sort of kind of past de- dependency of institutional structures from imperial or colonial times uh, that can be very quickly mobilized uh, when it's necessary by the by the former uh, metropolis for a variety of reasons. But I would say, I mean, in terms of countries that are not part of the CFA franc or countries that are not still using the the currency or uh, or they're not very closely pegged to the currency of of their former um, uh, colonial structures. I mean, nominally, there is a lot more independence, right? Nominally, countries all over the global south, uh, um, and I'm including here uh, countries in in the former Soviet Union in some ways, and even I would say my own country is uh, is only sort of nominally part of the European Union. But uh, we have this nominal independence with uh, institutional structures that we can change, 
that we can adapt to our own sort of autonomous uh, developmental pathway. But in practice, there is very little scope, I would say, um, if you if you push me to think of countries that are trying to move away from the hegemonic uh, economic model and institutional model, I could say Argentina has tried to do that over the last couple of years, but it struggled very, very seriously. And there are great heterodox economist minds there uh, who are in government and, and they illustrate, I think, uh, very clearly how difficult it is to try to carve out a different developmental model, one that tries to resuscitate the developmental state that uh, structuralism, that dependency school um, sort of tried to think through. So uh, in practice, uh, we are still uh, very significantly constrained. We are constrained through a variety of mechanisms, not just we have to institutionally mirror other countries or or, or the US or, or uh, high-income countries, but there are also the constraints of financing. For example, if you see countries in uh, in Africa or countries in Latin America that have tried to 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 sort of uh, at least experiment with um, uh, addition, with different uh, developmental models, the first question that is on the table is how will uh, international investors react to this? And am I sacrificing market access? And and uh, it's very interesting to listen to UN agencies. UN agencies used to be part of of what we thought as as, as structures that were behind the the developmental state and autonomous uh, models. Uh, but nowadays they all talk about uh, the question of market access and how you have to sacrifice particular choices and how you, ha you have to put market access first. And and I think that's a very powerful constraint in many ways, you know, because even if you are a government that, that has a more heterodox inclination, if you're told, well, tomorrow you will lose access to uh, international finance, then that's a very difficult question to, to deal with. Well, what do you do next uh, unless you close down your borders and you're prepared to, to do the political work of con convincing your, your domestic constituencies that they have to take the hit now for a brighter future some, sometimes, uh, who knows when. So, yes, there are different ways in which we are, uh, different, different me mechanisms of subordination, one that has to do with the market access, the other one that has to do with the institutional mirroring, and it takes a lot of political and, and ideological and, and institutional work to challenge that. Interesting. So control over market access and the structure of institutions is something that cuts across these eras, even though the forms are quite different in the formal colonial era and now. Um, I want to go back to um, the tail end of the formal colonial era for just a moment, just so we can set up the creation of the kind of global system of economic regulation that we have now. So this is also something discussed in Dongo's book, the 1939 creation of the Frank Zone and eventually the CFA Frank. So what are the, what's the Frank Zone? What's the CFA Frank? And how did these function to control the economies of African countries? You know, at one point in the world system, we had this monetary organization, let's say a global monetary organization called the Sterling Standard. Selling standard. Well, I would say the, the gold standard, precise, the gold standard. And that means that, well, the central bank uh, reserves had to be backed at some point by an, an amount of um, a stock of, of, of gold. And that's the way the uh, International Monetary Organization functioned from the, let's say, um, last 25 years of the 90th century. The system collapsed during the, um, between the two world wars. 
it was resuscitated uh, just after the Second World War, but it collapsed. And uh, Britain, let's say, uh, get rid of the peg to the gold, etc., and formed the, a sterling st- the, the sterling zone. And the sterling zone uh, gathered, let's say, countries uh, and also territories under British domination, which accepted to have their um, reserves controlled in London, and also their currencies were pegged to the to the sterling. And uh, France did the same uh, in 1939, just before the Second World War. World War they created the France zone because they left the, um, the gold standard, I think, in 1936, and they created the France zone. And so the France zone, like the sterling zone, was a kind of, uh, let's say, monetary and trade empire. Uh, that means uh, territories, uh, sovereign, non-sovereign, whose currencies were pegged to the front and who has the same, uh, let's say, uh, exchange rate legislation. And so that organized a system of trade and monetary, let's say, shield against, let's say, the other rivals. That's, that's how it worked. That means, for example, if uh, a given territory wanted to import things, let's say, outside the empire, those imports were uh, subject to uh, controls by, 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 by the metropole, by, by, by Paris, because it would have implied let's say, a leakage in terms of uh, foreign exchange and so on. That's how it worked. That was the, the France zone. But the France zone was uh, composed of territories and countries less wealthy than, for example, the, 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 the Stelling zone. In 1945, just after the Second World War, what happened was that the, uh, the French economy was in ruins. There were many shortages and the stock of gold depleted and so on. And you have huge inflation. Inf- uh, rate of inflation were higher uh, compared to the colonies and also compared to, the, um, to, um, to Britain and the U.S. So one technical question was that we have to, at that time, they had to devalue the, the French franc. And they, uh, the main issue was that should they have a uniform rate of devaluation for the whole empire? Because except some parts of the empire, there was one single currency, the franc. So whether they would have one single rate of devaluation or whether they would have different rates of devaluation, depending, let's say, on the economic situations of different parts of the empire. So they decided to have different rates of devaluation. And that gave birth to the uh, CFA franc. And at that time, it was called the Front of the French Colonies in Africa. It was created in 1945, in December 26, 1945, just after the ratification of the Bretton Woods Agreements by France, you see. And so it's the French provisional government which declared to the, to the IMF, which, which was just born, uh, the parity of the CFA franc in terms of gold, but also in terms of French franc and US dollar. You see, December uh, 1945. And the objective for France was to reconquer the trade shares it lost during the war. Because during the war, economic relationships between uh, France and its uh, African empire, there were not so... Um, in fact, there were rupture in their, in their, in their trade, trade relationships. You will see that the French share in the in the trade of uh, its African colonies declined significantly, mostly by more more than fifty percent, for example. And yeah, they wanted to reconquer that. And at the same time, the French economy was not so competitive, so as to let's say to to be able to compete, for example, what with the U.S. or the. They needed to have access to raw materials, but without using their for, scarce foreign exchange, and the CFA franc somehow allowed them to recover those trade shares, to have access to African raw materials by credit 
uh, without using their, their, their foreign exchange reserves and also having the possibility to export products in the in the territories under under, under control uh, so as to help uh, France France and, and industrialization and reconstruction process that was uh, the, the the context in the 1950s 1945 yeah let's talk a bit more about that context one of the things that you mentioned was of course the huge impact of the second world war and the waste that it laid to much of Europe, but in particular, the conference in Bretton Woods, New Hampshire, that created a lot of the global institutions that we have now in 1944. So Daniela, Dongo, what are the important takeaways about that moment in 1944 that France was reacting to in 1945? Is it the creation of the International Monetary Fund that was so important about that conference? Is it the creation of specific rules, like the placing of foreign currencies in adjustable but fixed exchange rates to the U.S. dollar? Or what strikes you both as important aspects of that moment from a world systems perspective? Currently, it is really fashionable to talk about the new Bretton Woods. That's so funny because, you know, uh, there was no Africans at the Bretton Woods Conference. <laughs> you know, it was a colonial world. And, uh, you know, if you didn't speak English, you wouldn't be heard. You know, even countries from Latin America, they wouldn't be heard. You have to speak English, you see. So Bretton Woods was a very um, special gathering, you see. Maybe economic period after the, let's say, the three decades after the Bretton Woods Conference, was a relatively um, economically good period for, for capitalism. We could say that. That's why many people are nostalgic about uh, the Bretton Woods. But the Bretton Woods uh, uh, conference was not designed for people of the global south. That's a thing. And I think there's an history to unearth there. For example, I am interested in knowing what did France uh, uh, tell people about its colonies, etc. For now, there is no, 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 no so about that. I would be interested in doing that research, but yeah. You see, uh, so the thing is that, well, when I uh, take the perspective of, let's say, Francophone countries, the Bretton Woods, uh, let's say, regime, uh, monetary regime, uh, trade regime, etc., uh, was a U.S. regime. It was a regime that cemented uh, the global hegemony of the U.S. Because after the Second World War, uh, most of the gold stock was held by the U.S. And the U.S. at that time was a creditor country. You see, so the U.S. dominated the, the, the world economy. But the thing is, uh, when World Bank and the IMF were created, well, they were created also to enforce somehow hegemony of, let's say, former colonial country, former colonizers and beyond, beyond, beyond the U.S. Because until now, you could see if you take the case of the IMF that uh, generally m- most people know that the managing director of the IMF is, is a European and the vice president is, a, is an American. It has been a kind of pact, you see, a pact between, let's say, hegemons. Most of the Europeans have been French. And when it comes to the Francophone countries, the IMF and France are the same, are the same let's say, <laughs> are the same, you see. That means that most decisions that are of interest to France, generally they are backed by the IMF. Uh, so the French could use IMF as their instrument to discipline, uh, let's say, countries, uh, let's say, Francophone countries, especially those using the CFA franc. And that's why you could see a kind of double speak 
when it comes to um, francophone countries. You, you, when you read the re reports of the IMF, somehow they are sometimes they are really harsh about the exchange rate policies of countries of the global south. Normally, they would advocate, uh, let's say, the lack of cap uh, capital controls and also flexible exchange rates. But when it comes to Francophone countries of the CFA Franc, they will say, for example, they have monetary stability, the peg is wonderful, and yeah, the French is beyond, the, the French uh, Treasury is su supporting this currency through its, uh, let's say, budget, through budgetary support, etc. You see, so you have a different type of um, IMF when it comes to the countries of the of, of the CFA zone. So Bretton Woods, uh, well, people might say we need a new Bretton Woods. I would say that we need a new Bandon, Bandon Woods. When I say Bandung Woods, is that a mix of Bretton Woods and Bandung? Because Bandung, yeah, was kind of a summit where the people from the third world say that we want a new world order. That was the first call for a new world order. So to internalize the thing, we need Bandung, but we need also some kind of a more internationalized perspective. That means uniting all the countries. That means we don't need a new Bretton Woods, but a Bandung Woods. That's something for now we don't have. Um, thank you. I mean, uh, I would just add that um, that this nostalgia for Bretton Woods that Ndongo mentioned. I think sometimes I also am a little bit guilty for it, uh, maybe maybe forgetting that indeed. Um, I mean, African countries were not at the table, but the way that we remember the the the, the history of of Bretton Woods is is the U.S. fighting or or, or fighting with the U.K. or overtaking the U.K. as as you know the new hegemon in in the, the world system. And and I think part of the nostalgia for Bretton Woods, uh, in a sense, is also uh, comes from trying to recover some of the most progressive aspects of Keynesian thinking, and trying to to sort of di divorce them from Keynes's defense of empire and and trying to uh, of the British Empire, and also try to deal with some of the disappointments, uh, which are in a sense quite Keynesian disappointments about the outcome of the Bretton Woods. Because if you think about what Keynes wanted for the IMF, is very different from what we think now the IMF stands for. The IMF stands for an institution that pushes deflationary forces into a country where it. Uh, goes to, uh, between quotation marks, help to lend when nobody else wants to lend to this country. What the IMF says is to say we will force you into a deflationary economic policy in order to make sure that you can you can repay your debts to uh, both the international and domestic creditors and you can deal with your balance of payment crisis. So, yes, there is there is a, new, uh, a need for some rethinking of the institutions behind uh, Bretton Woods in, in the, the kind of uh, logic that... Uh, Ndongo highlighted, but also uh, there is a need, to my mind, to to rethink the the economics behind the the functioning of the Bretton Woods Bretton Woods institutions at, at the moment. I'm I'm assuming we'll go to discuss that in some more depth. Well, one thing I would like to add is that well, it was a progressive regime. I, I agree with, with with Daniela. Yeah, and there are many tools we have to recover for let's say for the benefit of let's say let's say people uh, worldwide. Uh, but the thing is that there had been a contradiction uh, identified by, by some economists in the Bretton Woods system because the system was working on the assumption of having, let's say, equilibrium, let's say, in, in the current account, in the trade balance and, and so on, you see. So that means that, well, countries will have uh, fixed and adjustable parities to the, to the U.S. dollar, uh, but it was assumed that, well, there would not be so much trade imbalances, current account imbalances. And, but at the same time, the logic of the UN, the United Nations, was that there should be a net transfer of all resources to the, 
to the developing countries. That means, for example, uh, when you assume net transfer of resources, there should be uh, somehow uh, capital leaving the rich countries to go to the, let's say, to the global south, to the third world. So that means that there should be uh, imbalances, let's say, in the, let's say, financial and, and, and trade flows. And so this has been uh, somehow also um, a contradiction in the thinking about the Bretton Woods regime. And the thing is that despite the best will, what we have observed, uh, let's say, throughout the decades is that, well, we did not uh, see a net transfer of resources from the global north to the global south. Instead, the rivers, that means the global south, uh, have been transferring uh, net resources to the global north. And this is somehow, let's say, something that that is not, uh, well, that should not be the case because we should, the global north should, let's say, transfer net resources to help the global south, uh, uh, let's say, develop, etc. But that was not the case. So as Daniela said, that means that we have to re rethink all this period and also come up with fresh ideas so as to take into account uh, all those aspects. If, if I just may add, sorry, Femi, you stop us when you want to, but if I, if I just may add, I mean, Dongo, what you just described is, 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 a, is a kind of a symptom of the fact that, that the U.S. And, and White won the debate with Keynes in, in, in 1944, 1945, because Keynes precisely wanted to, to create a insti global institutions or international institutions that could create an international currency beyond uh, the, the limited supply of U.S. dollars and gold that could lend generously and that could lend automatically without conditionality. And what we have now, even if you look at what's happened with the 650 billions of SDRs created last year, what we have now is very significant amounts of conditionality, very limited possibilities to create international um, or glo a global currency in the form of, of SDR, not much generosity in lending, unless you're uh, a conservative government in Argentina and your best friend is Christine Lagarde at the, at the helm of the IMF, then there is some generosity. But if you're a left in government in power, you, you're not going to see the same generosity from the IMF for sure. This is, this is great. This is important. You know, um, one of the things that is coming out of what you're both saying, I think, is that after the Second World War, the European empires, the old European empires, didn't quite mean what they once did. But through Bretton Woods, there were institutions like the IMF and the predecessor to the World Bank. And these former empires were able to exert discipline through these institutions. France did with the IMF, for example. So at the same time, the post-war period is a boom for capitalism on some measures, but an era of crisis for colonialism. This political system that got built at Bretton Woods has to struggle to contain a wave of revolutions throughout the world from 1945 to the 1970s, which is when much of Asia and Africa wins national independence from the imperial allies who were present at the Bretton Woods conference speaking English to each other. So those political pressures of managing this new world system, a world system where there had been so many national independence movements that the number of countries more than tripled, right? This led to new push for economic policies to be run through these Bretton Woods institutions. And that leads to something that Danielle has written about, which is the Washington consensus, a kind of technocratic consensus around 
good economic policies that are especially important for these newly independent countries. Um, so what's the Washington consensus and how did it affect things like social safety nets and government spending in newly independent countries and the rest of the world? And what are the people who are trying to defend it these days getting wrong? Do we still have this same Washington consensus dominating today or is it something different? Okay, so uh, the Washington consensus is in a sense a, a marker of uh, who makes the rules in, in, in the global economic system, and that was Washington. Uh, its, its intellectual father is was John Williamson. Uh, he was quite reluctant to recognize himself as an intellectual father because very quickly the Washington consensus was dubbed as a neoliberal consensus. I think it's best described as a, as a holy trinity that was of, of economic policies that were uh, prescribed to, to countries, particularly in Latin America. This was a kind of what's happening in our patio type of uh, arrangement for the, for the U.S. And uh, this Holy Trinity had a, um, economic st stabilization, which basically meant the central banks have to target inflation and to keep uh, prices stable. It had pri privatization, which is try to reduce the footprint of the developmental state in the economy or the state that allocates capital or, or uh, gets involved in production through um, state-owned companies or state-owned enterprises, uh, and liberalization of international trade, so remove trade barriers, um, but also liberalization of, of prices domestically. Do not use price controls, remove subsidies as much as possible. And this is interpreted uh, as a... As a, as a an attempt to change the balance uh, between, in a sense, the, the the state and the market. I mean, it's a it's a crude description, you know, this uh, state versus markets, because of course the state had to construct certain markets, but it definitely is an attempt. The Washington Consensus was uh, a, a well a, a policy paradigm and a political project to uh, basically kill off the developmental state. Uh, the developmental state, which in the 1950s and the 1960s, under different kind of economic or what we describe now as heterodox economic ideas, was in charge of designing a national uh, development strategy that tried to deal with something that Ndongo described earlier with this deteriorating terms of trade, right? So the idea was how do we make sure that we always, that we will get paid better for our exports than what we have to pay for our, our imports. And that typically meant industrial upgrading, that typically meant having a good industrial policy, it typically meant having some form of financial repression, uh, which kind of subordinated the domestic banking system to the needs of the industrial policy. It meant some form form of a social contract with domestic capital and with uh, also with foreign capital, but mostly domestic capital, in order to orient or to make sure that domestic capital work together with the state for these industrial policy purposes. So the Washington Consensus is basically, I would read it as, as, as a political project to dismantle this developmental state and instead to, to bring in the market as, as the mechanism to allocate resources. So the state doesn't disappear, of course. Uh, but what we know is that the state that is useful for citizens, in a sense, disappears because you have a, an increasing um, a removal of the state from the provision of, of public goods one way or another. And we under the idea that the market can do things better than the state, right? Because you have white elephants, because you have also failed developmental state projects uh, in, in many countries, including Latin American countries. You have the failure of uh, import substitution strategies. 
And of course, you have the uh, Bretton Woods institutions who are pushing this uh, uh, Washington consensus all over the world. So where the IMF goes or where the World Bank goes, you have structural adjustment, you have the IMF pushing for um, uh, stabil particular forms of monetary and fiscal austerity. Uh, under the Washington consensus. And at some point, uh, there is an increasing recognition uh, towards the end of the 1990s that this meant a, a, a lost decade for Latin American countries, that it produced a lot of poverty in across African countries that were uh, forced to adopt them, or they're adopting them. There are the, uh, certain domestic political constituencies that prefer the Washington consensus rules simply because they align well with right-wing right policies, right? or with right-wing politics. So, but, so I would say by the early 2000s, this Washington consensus, uh, at least celebration of the market as an allocation mechanism, it becomes more muted and the uh, Bretton Woods institutions become a bit more guarded in promoting it. Uh, and then we move into what is called now the post-Washington consensus, which is a, a, a recognition that there are market failures, right? So, if there are market failures, then, of course, the state is necessary. So you don't have the, the, the resurrection of the developmental state, but you have, the, in a sense, the resurrection of, of the state as, as a regulator that, that tries to correct market failures but doesn't allocate capital or doesn't interfere with market signals. It corrects the signals if those have gone wrong one way or another. And in some ways, we still have that now because all discussions about carbon prices, for example, that, uh, that have to do with how to achieve the low carbon transition, they rest on the idea that the state doesn't need to do a lot more than just correct the failure of the market to price the climate crisis. Thank, thanks, Daniela. Maybe I could add some, some words. Uh, as I am uh, from the generation uh, whose parents suffered the consequences of the, um, the IMF World Bank austerity policies uh, because you could see concrete, uh, let's say, the concrete impacts because uh, many people were, let's say, were fired from their jobs, for example, because uh, the, um, one of the um, uh, way to implement these structural adjustment policies uh, was that to say, for example, the state has to clean up its own budget. That means limiting its spending, you see. And one way to limit the spending is to cut health expenditures, uh, education expenditures, and also uh, to um, get rid of, uh, let's say, the, some civil servants. You could see uh, clearly those impacts. Uh, those, the cleaning up also the state budgets meant also less investment and less, let's say, support to industrial policies, agricultural policies, and so on. That has been the, the impact. And that's why if you look at the um, development trajectory of Africa and you compare that to Asia, you would see that the most significant uh, difference uh, came, uh, let's say, um, after, let's say, 1978, bye-bye there, 1980s, because all the countries which suffered um, the consequences of the structural adjustment policies for those two decades, 1980s and 2000, you see that many Asian countries did well because they were not subjected to the IMF uh, uh, and World Bank uh, policies. Uh, so that you could see that uh, uh, some countries like, for example, Cote d'Ivoire and Senegal, if you look at the, 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 the evolution of the real GDP, their gross domestic product per capita, if you look at it, you would see, for example, that some of the poorest countries in the world, like Senegal, Niger, and so on, their real GDP per capita, let's say in 2015, was lower than their best 
level of real GDP per capita before the structural adjustment policies. So that's a, a clear indicator of, of the failure of, of these kind of uh, policies. But they were meant as a way to, as Daniela said, to go against any idea of development state. Uh, there are many things people say about Africa, but the first two decades were, de were um, developmental decades, despite all the shortcomings, despite proxy wars, etc. But the leaders were really committed to create some development. And uh, you could see that in the work by uh, the African economist from Malawi, uh, Tandika Mkandawaya. So we had two relatively good decades of development because uh, generally people uh, are not aware of what has been the, the, the impact of, of colonialism. Uh, Samir Amin sometimes used to say that, well, uh, you know, the most odious uh, political regime in this world was, uh, was the regime of Mobutu Seseko in, uh, in Zaire, currently DRC. When the uh, Belgian left the country, they have less than 10 people, uh, let's say, educating, having, let's say, uh, an education level beyond the baccalaureate. But uh, three decades later, you have millions of people. So that means that the first two decades have been developmental, but this has been somehow hijacked by this uh, Washington consensus uh, policies. And it has also restructured African states and uh, gave birth to new power dynamics. So economists have not quite mounted a full-throated defense of the Washington consensus, right? We're in something of a post-Washington consensus, um, given the challenges that both of you have talked about. But the Washington consensus does still seem to get a kind of muted support, as Daniela put it. I was struck in particular by something Daniela said in co-authored work with Carolina Alves and Ingrid Van Graven. We're told that countries like Nicaragua, as a particular case study, would have done better under the Washington consensus than under uh, left-wing populist leader Daniel Ortega's presidency. And I'm, of course, not referring to his current presidency, but his tenure during the Sandinista revolution from 1979 to 1990. But papers that analyze Nicaragua's economic performance during this period don't tend to mention the CIA-funded Contras, you know, paramilitaries that the Sandinistas had to devote resources to fighting. And they also use an interesting method to test the hypothesis that, uh, Daniela, you and your co-authors describe as building a synthetic Nicaragua composed of 23% Chile, 54% Honduras, 9% Mexico, 8% Norway, and 7% the U.S., so what did these economists seek to accomplish in fabricating this synthetic Nicaragua? And what does that obscure about the reality of Washington consensus policies? Oh, thank you. This was, I mean, I, I would say this is just a, a minor uh, area of interest to me uh, uh, that just, uh, in a sense, came on, on my radar uh, reading um, the developmental studies literature and there's this idea that you can create synthetic countries or fictitious countries who, might, who, would have who, who could have chosen different policy trajectories than the ones they have. Uh, and uh, we found an example of Nicaragua. And because I know Nicaragua quite well, we, we had a look with, the, with these two colleagues that you mentioned the argument that uh, Nicaragua would have done better if had it adopted Washington consensus policies 
during the 1980s when it had uh, a, the, the first Sandinista regime, right, since 1979 until Daniel Ortega loses the election in, in 1990. And we just, uh, I mean, maybe that's an example of, of a, a, I would say, a rather desperate attempt to try to, to sort of whitewash the record of the Washington consensus by, by choosing a country that gets bombed by by basically CIA, uh, Iran, Contra, scandals. I mean, the, it, it's quite incredible to me that they would use the example of Nicaragua when, when it, it's such a, 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 an insightful example of, of what happens when the U.S. is trying to derail a socialist project uh, in back in its patio, right? So that, that, that I, I think, I don't think it's a very serious or, or credible uh, uh, method, this one, if, if we look at the, at the example uh, of Nicaragua. I, 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 it's also not, not very powerful politically, this, um, this approach. And I, I would say that in general, I mean, the Washington consensus as we know it is dead. Um, I've, I've worked quite a bit on what I call now the Wall Street consensus. It's, a, it's a, in many ways a, a very different political animal. But the, the kind of logic is the same, no? I mean, the underlying political logic is still that the market is better placed to deliver on whatever uh, public policy outcomes you, you might want to have. It's just, it requires partnerships. We have moved from the... The Washington consensus didn't have the language of partnership so clear there that the, the market was much more important in terms of the, the narratives that were that were um, uh, deployed. Uh, but now we have moved towards a, lang a language of partnerships. Uh, maybe we get to talk about Larry Fink's letter from Larry Fink, the, the head of BlackRock, the world's largest financial institution, and in a sense, the, the, the elite of, of uh, financial capital, if you want somebody who is embodies the elite of financial capital, that's Larry Fink. And Larry Fink always speaks about partnerships between stakeholder capital and, uh, and the state. And that's a very different language than the language we had in the, in the Washington consensus. And I think that matters substantively. So the Washington consensus was, of course, not the end of attempts to regulate the international economy by the powers that be. That's, that's why we're in a post-Washington consensus. And this is where both of your paths have converged in an article that really shifted how I think about today's economies and power players, and which is why I was so excited to get you both on the dig. You, you both co-wrote this article, Planting Budgetary Time Bombs in Africa. Danielle has also written about this new Wall Street consensus. You've uh, both written about um, the so-called Paris consensus. So... What are these new consensuses after Washington and how do the Wall Street and Paris consensuses differ from the earlier Washington consensus? Doc, I, I feel you should take this just because it's about, I mean, the Paris consensus and the Wall Street consensus are the same. It's, it's just, in a sense, we, we ended up writing about this because Macron, the, the President Emmanuel Macron in France, has been uh, artic articulating what he claims to be a critique of the outcomes and the doctrine of the Washington Consensus. So we refer to it in, in the piece that uh, we co-authored co um, at the end of 2020. And if you read his speech, I mean, the way that that, that, that speech critiques the economics of the Washington Consensus, it's quite fascinating. I, I actually, I couldn't believe it the first time Dongo and I read it. I couldn't believe 
the tone and the critique. It talks about a financialized economy. It talks about the, the adverse consequences of privatization, of liberalization, about poverty, about inequality, about distribution. And you think, I mean, we know Macron from a, a, a very many different kind of angles, but I, for one, had not known this uh, angle of Macron, you know, being able to deploy the language of a, of a critical political economy scholar in, in trying to frame his alternative. And I think this is important. And that's why maybe Ndongo is is better place to take this, because what I call the Wall Street consensus is now, I think, informing the way in which the uh, France and, and the European Union is trying to rethink the partnership with, with Africa. They, they call it like this. I'm, I'm sorry to use the term Africa as if it's, I don't mean it as one country, but this is the specific way in which uh, Macron frames it and, and the European Union policies under the global gateway, a new strategy. Uh, they they frame it as a renewal of the axis Africa-Europe or the partnership between uh, Africa and Europe. And Dongo, do you want to take that? Well, maybe just to add that, yeah. Daniela also is, is inspired me. Femi, uh, uh, you are not alone. Because his way of uh, making us understand the uh, differences between the Washington consensus and the Wall Street consensus, it's really something really important. Because, well, as she said, we still have the logic of the Washington consensus, but we are in a new uh, framework. And uh, if you were to make a, a joke, we would say that, well, with the Wall Street consensus, we, we have a kind of a new Bretton Woods, but uh, <laughs> new Bretton Woods, well, for the benefit of, um, let's say, um, global, global finance, you know, asset managers, you know. But uh, this is uh, done with the diplomacy of... Um, European Union, uh, countries like France, etc., which uh, are articulating a discourse saying that, well, we want to change things. Uh, we want to go beyond the Washington consensus. We want to provide infrastructure because we know that you need it and you don't have the capital, etc. You don't have the financing for that. And we are here. What we just want is you to provide the right conditions so that, well, everything you need uh, will be uh, financed and you'll have your infrastructure, you have all the uh, public services, and the investors will have uh, their returns and everybody will be happy. So that's a kind of um, fairy tale that you could hear from uh, Mr. Macron. And that's why we tried to write this article to show what is behind this Paris consensus, this uh, Wall Street consensus by giving some concrete examples. And yeah, when we... Um, choose this um, title, planting budgetary time bombs, well, in fact, the expression came from the French themselves, the French parliament. They say that, well, this drive to um, so-called public-private partnerships, uh, they are not a big deal uh, because often they are costly, uh, they worsen inequality, uh, and uh, yeah, this they create, uh, let's say, situation which are not really um, beneficial to the users of uh, public infrastructures and, and so on. So that's what we have uh, tried to, to write a bit. Yeah, if, if, if I can add, so I would, if, if we want to, to, in a sense, uh, summarize what the, what the Wall Street consensus does, it, it, to my mind, it upgrades the Washington consensus for the 
age of financial capitalism, right? And it says, it, it, it extends the status quo in the sense that it doesn't come with a, a new proposal for macroeconomic uh, policies. It still insists on, on fiscal and, and monetary austerity. And it just brings in the state back, but it brings in what, what I call as the de-risking state because of the way that it frames the develop, development problem. So the development problem used to be, for example, in the, in the old developmental trade tradition was how do we improve our terms of trade? The development problem now is how do we create investable assets for in, institutional investors, right? So the idea is, look, uh, Larry Fink and BlackRock have made this point all over and over again. There are uh, institutional investors like pension funds and insurance companies and together with their asset managers, they have trillions of dollars under management. These trillions of dollars would like to, to find a home or to find asset classes or financial instruments that would help achieve the sustainable development goals. The problem is that, for example, for BlackRock to finance a port in, in, Tunis, in Tunisia, uh, there is a mismatch between risks and return, right? The, the risk-adjusted returns are just not right for BlackRock. Either the risks are too high or the returns are too low compared to the risk. So the idea is, well, this is the, the sport in Tunis is not investable, but the, the state of Tunis, together with multilateral development banks and with the European Union, can change the risk-return profile of the, of this project, and if it does so, then BlackRock would buy the debt that this project is issuing in order to finance itself. So, so this is where the Wall Street consensus is very powerful because it, it is also a political project to change the nature of the state in, uh, in the global South countries and to uh, create a, a government or, or, or instruments of governance that are focused on de-risking. And public-private par partnerships are a good vehicle for that because these are institutional arrangements in which the private sector is delivering public services, but with, with some of the risks take, taken by the state, right? So it's a, it's a partnership in the sense that the state says, well, let's write in our legal contracts what Catalina Pistor calls this coding of capital, this coding of, of the Wall Street consensus is to say, well, the state assumes uh, these uh, risks and uh, if something goes wrong, then, then the state compensates the, the private party and the private party can make sure that institutional investors continue to get paid, right? So it's a it's a project to create in, uh, or a, a development paradigm that relies on the idea that you have to create investable assets if you want to get developed and uh, you have to generate yield. And that, that already kind of extends the logic of privatization in the Washington consensus. Because if you want to create infrastructure as an asset class or health as an asset class or, or nature as an asset class, that means that you have to generate some cash flows that BlackRock gets paid every month or every year besides the principle that it gets repaid at the end of whatever this financial instrument or asset when it, when it matures. And how do you get this cash flows? Well, by basically introducing user fees. So with Undongo, we looked at various examples of countries where you have user fees introduced. For example, when you use a, a highway, you, you have to pay toll. Uh, if there is a global pandemic and there is a falling demand for this um, highway, then the state guarantees the cash flow will continue by basically 
uh, subsidizing infrastructure or the highway for uh, the lack of use during a pandemic. And there is, it's also for renewable energy. If you look at the example of Morocco, it's also the case for Ghana is a, is a really crazy case because Ghana basically uh, ended up guaranteeing demand for fossil fuels for gas. I mean, we don't know anymore whether gas is a fossil fuel because the, our global financial elite has decided that natural gas is a, a green fossil fuel that needs to be supported continuously, which is also kind of ironic in many ways. But yes, I, I, I would, I would uh, very much agree with Ndongo that, that this is, it, it is a political project and a new development paradigm, I think. And, and unlike the, the Washington consensus, it's different in the sense that it, it's not, it's much more subtle, you know. I mean, if you look at COP26 on day three, the, day, the finance day, then everybody spoke the same language and it was all from the same hinge sheet of the Wall Street consensus. Everybody said bankable, investable, the risk, blend, and everything will be great, which, which you didn't see three years ago or five years ago. So there is a kind of momentum behind this, but we don't have the same intellectuals as you, we don't have the John Williamsons that, that talk about the risking. And maybe that's because, you know, it's financial capital and financial capital is it's much better at articulating its own narratives uh, then, in a sense, whatever, uh, you know, the old forms of capital under the Washington consensus, when it was some French corporation that wanted to continue to extract wealth from the CFA franc uh, region. I think the idea of the Wall Street and Paris consensus as a kind of de facto Bretton Woods for asset managers, that's that's really clarifying for me. <laughs> that's <laughs> extremely clarifying for me. That, um, and, and I want to follow up on this point that, that you're both making here. So there's a new relationship between the state, private capital, and risk, and this public-private partnerships language and actual investment strategy is both a kind of ideological tool of managing it and an actual practical financial tool of managing it. You've connected this to a point that you've raised uh, theoretically in your work, Daniela. Uh, you have this uh, article, Critical Macro Finance, and you argue there that market-based finance structurally requires a de-risking state, right? So it's not just helpful or a strategy that could work, but it's actually a structural requirement based on how capitalism has developed up until now. So, so what's the structural part here? Can you say a little bit about um, why market-based finance requires the state to play this role as a de-risking state and say a little bit more about how we've seen that structural necessity play out. You gave the example of uh, Ghana, for, for instance, but if you have any other examples, I think that would help. Yes, thank you. I'm I'm going to rely here on, on the insights of another uh, dead white man in the met metropolis, which is Hyman Minsky. Uh, I, I take from the scholarship of Hyman Minsky, who was in many ways a, a, a critical, well, I wouldn't call him a radical, but a critical heterodox economist. And what he argued as, as early as the 19... Well, late uh, 1950, early 1960s, he argued that we have to think about the institutions of macroeconomic management as co-evolving with financial market structure. 
what he meant by this, and this is what critical macrofinance tries to do conceptually, is to theorize this idea that uh, the institutions of the state, the monetary arm of the state and the fiscal arm of the state, in a sense, respond to changes in the financial system and have to adjust to, 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 to structural changes in the financial system if they want to preserve capitalism in some ways, or, or in this case, if they want to preserve financial capitalism. And in, in that paper that you refer to, I give the example, I mean, so far we've only talked about the, the fiscal commitments that you have in through uh, uh, public-private partnerships because it's the fiscal arm of the state in a sense that signs these contracts. But the the more the more historically interesting or well not historically interesting but the the first part of the state or the first arm of the state to do the risking is the central bank. So if we look for example at at the new forms of money that are created under financial capitalism, and these are this is uh, I call this shadow money, and I don't want to to bore your audience with very technical detail, but it's it's kind of IOUs uh, uh, or promises to pay. That that preserve value, that preserve uh, parity between the promise to pay and, and traditional forms of money, that are new but that come under a lot of pressure during times of financial crisis, and the state has to step in and, in a sense, take the uh, risks them or or preserve them. And I give in that paper the example of uh, government bonds. The fact that that the the central bank in high-income countries for sure, but also in middle-income countries, central banks have started purchasing government bonds on a scale unprecedented, even by Keynesian standards, I I would argue, uh, although nominally or formally still under the banner of central bank independence. So we have this paradox that central banks are are nominally independent, operationally independent, uh, discursively or ideologically, they claim their independence, but at the same time, they print money or or they they monetize government debt, they absorb government debt on their balance sheet, uh, at least over the last two years, on a scale that is unprecedented. And some people would argue, well, you know, this is just... The, the contingencies of COVID, of the COVID pandemic. Some people would argue, well, you know, this is the political capture in the US in particular. Some people would argue this is the political capture of the central bank. But what the critical macrofinance perspective tells us, it's no, it's it's structurally, structurally required by the nature of the financial system. We live in a macrofinancial order, if you want, where government bonds are very important for new forms of money. And if their value falls a lot, then uh, you can have a financial crisis. So the central bank for financial stability purposes, it has to de-risk them, right? It has to step in, buy, uh, put a a floor on on their price in order to make sure that financial stability is preserved. And if you read the... The uh, the public speeches of, for example, the governor of the Bank of England, the new one, Andrew Bailey, who is much more conservative than the previous one, he makes it very explicit that Bank of England buys government bonds for financial stability purposes. The European Central Bank buys government bond for, bonds for financial stability purposes, which is a form of de-risking. In in other in other jurisdictions or in the global South countries, you have interventions in currency markets. It's a form of currency de-risking. That basically makes sure that institutional investors don't have to absorb uh, or don't run away because you have a lot of of currency volatility. So the the practices of de-risking, I think, were first normalized by central banks, which is very paradoxical because they were supposed, or maybe it's not, maybe it precisely because they were independent, they they were able to politically undertake what are what they call unconventional measures, but they, what they really go against the logic of independence and somehow continue with with those measures, although coming under significant political contestation. 
I'm Naomi Klein. You're listening to The Dig as well you should be, and you can support them on Patreon.com. This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at Patreon.com and by Haymarket Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is The Border Crossed Us, The Case for Opening the U.S.-Mexico Border by Justin Ackers Chacon. Contemporary North American capitalism relies heavily on an interconnected working class which extends across the U.S.-Mexico border. Despite the growth and violence of the police state dedicated to the repression of trans-border populations, migrant workers have been at the forefront of class struggle in the United States. This timely book persuasively argues that labor and migrant solidarity movements are already showing how and why we must open the border in order to fight for justice and rebuild the international union movement. As Harsha Walia puts it, Justin Acker's Chacon masterfully exposes how capital mobility necessarily criminalizes the movement of labor and, with radical and urgent clarity, he calls on all of us to strengthen the movement to open the border. The Border Crossed Us by Justin Ackers Chacon, out now from Haymarket Books. All of these things that we're talking about are ways that central banks manage to de-risk portfolios, um, but functionally shift risk as well, right? So the demand to keep stable, predictable returns to portfolios turns into user fees for Africans who are trying to access roads, right? So more generally than particular public-private partnerships and uh, shadow capital, what's the role of risk and securitization in securing political power and control? And who is it being secured for? Is it asset managers? Is it the shareholders themselves? And how does that structure of patterns of investment, of returns to shareholders' portfolios, how does it tell us this larger story about who wields power over whom? And what does the left need to learn about that larger story? I, that, that's a, a, a kind of a difficult question uh, for me, but I, I'll try, I'll attempt to answer it. I would say first that I think if you want a, a very striking statistic, I mean, it was striking to me. Uh, for a variety of reasons, but or even better, two striking statistics. Uh, 2021 was the best year for private equity firms ever, particularly Blackstone. It was the, the best year ever for BlackRock. In fact, BlackRock uh, just last week uh, passed the 10 trillion assets under management mark. Uh, in 2015, it had 5 trillion US dollars under management. It now has 10. In five years' time, it's basically doubled the amount of capital that it manages on behalf of institutional investors like U.S. pension funds or U.S. insurance companies. 2015 is also kind of interesting because it was the year that BlackRock managed to defeat attempts by the Financial Stability Board to regulate it as a globally systemic shadow bank. They, they argued, well, you know, we are asset managers. We only manage on behalf of our investors. We are not systemic. Leave us alone. Five years later, they are they have doubled in size. It's now BlackRock is, is probably five times larger than the largest global bank 
that we we have. So you could say that the what what Ben Brown calls the age of of asset management or asset manager capitalism. Well, we live in it if we just take the simple statistic of how quickly BlackRock managed to double its balance sheet and to what scale. Ten ten trillion US dollars is a lot of money. It's a, it's a it's the probably the size of the European area GDP for, for one year. It's, it's, it's a very significant first, it's a very significant uh, capital to have to, to be able to mobilize. And that tells you uh, or explains why uh, you had, uh, for example, uh, it's had Larry, Ro- Larry, sorry, Larry Fink invited on the stage on, at COP26 in, in, uh, on, on Finance Day. He was there and he's viewed as the interlocutor on behalf of financial capital for governments. There are forms of power, and I'm here I speak as a political economist, so I have some humility in the sense of, of, of recognizing my, the, the, my theoretical limits. There is uh, something co- that, that Ben Brown calls the infrastructural power of finance, which is that governments are increasingly reliant on fi- private financial institutions, on institutional capital to implement monetary fiscal policy, and with the advent of the Wall Street consensus, increasingly social policy, right? So that means, in a sense, the moment that this partnership exists in, in practice, you're right, it's not only ideological, but it's also in practice that the risking state has real-world uh, um, applications and it, 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 it occurs beyond the, the discursive level. The moment that you are so reliant on private finance for your monetary, fiscal, and social policies, that means that that reform of the system or a, ch- a change in the status quo is much more difficult politically, right? Because basically it means you somehow have to roll back not only the power of financial capital to influence the, the backroom conversations or to do lobbying, but you have to radically change the way in which you design and implement your own set of policies that are part of the social contract with your citizens. And, and that requires much, much more significant changes, not only politically, but, but you know, mechanically at, at the level of policy implementation. So there is this part of his infrastructural power. And then there is the obvious part of structural power. You know, if you have 10, 10 trillion assets under management and you have governments in the global south, particularly on the African continent, in Latin America, uh, in Asia, you, you go to them and they are worried about market access. And you say, well, you know, I can bring you 500 billion in capital tomorrow if we agree on a set of de-risking measures. That buys you that that amount of of resources buys you a seat at the table anywhere and buys you a lot of voice. And and there, I want to mention here that I've done some research on the liquidity and stability fund. This is a proposal of the UN Economic Commission for for Africa that is trying to create these market-based structures that I've described in my work on critical macrofinance, is trying to create them for government bonds in, in, on, on the African continent. And one of the reasons, if you look at who's designing these measures for, the, for UNECA, it's private finance. It's people from systemic asset managers who have been purchasing their government bonds for a long time and who now have innovative measures of how to how to do more of what I would call shadow banking under the promise of more liquidity and 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 better access to markets. So so there are many many different mechanisms I would I would argue through which this power uh, uh, both infrastructure and structural um, operates. And the consequences to me are very clear at the level of of distribution, right? And you you pointed to that. I mean at the distribution level. If you have to impose user fees, and if you read very carefully, the arguments are 
user fees on social infrastructure, but also a removal of subsidies on fossil fuels, a removal on, of, on, of subsidies on any public goods. The argument is, you know, to change risk return profiles, you can't subsidize your state-owned enterprises and then tell institutional investors, come and, buy, come and finance my private infrastructure. You can't do that because it's unfair competition. So it's not only that you de-risk or you subsidize your the institutional investors, and they don't need to be global. It's not just BlackRock. You, you can also do the same for your private pension funds exist locally, right? It's just your private pension funds, if you're Senegal or if you're even if you're South Africa, are never going to be able to compete with Aberdeen Asset Management or BlackRock if they are in the same room because they simply mobilize very different scales of, of resources. But the distributional consequences are very clear in the sense that it requires or it changes the, the, the nature of the social contract between the state and its citizens further and further away from a collective provisioning of public goods. I would say that's the most important bit. The collective provisioning of public goods disappears, but also the space for designing alternative development strategies in which you, you, you would argue, okay, if I want to revive the developmental state now and do industrial policy now under the low carbon transition, right? I want to think of Uganda. Uganda has, I, I really like this example of Uganda because nobody writes about it and I think it should. Uganda is building domestic capacity to build and manufacture electric buses, right? It's taking know-how from China, uh, it's using its own universities and it's trying to manufacture domestic buses uh, nationally instead of importing them from Germany, right? Which is, I think, very important. Nobody, nobody describes, I mean, nobody as in the world, you will not find a report of the World Bank describing this. But of course now, if for Uganda to scale this up in, in other areas, it requires financing, and it requires a, a technocratic and bureaucratic elite that will say, instead of trying to work through the risking contracts with, you know, German renewable energy companies, we will work through planning our industrial policy strategy on electric buses. So how do we how do you mobilize your your local bureaucratic capacity, your local institutional capacity in the state to do things? when you don't have a lot of resources, and I'm speaking as a Romanian who understands how difficult it is to have to do industrial policy in Romania, although we are in the European Union, even when we have the scope to do so, and we had over the last two years, we didn't have the people. And in a, in a sense, we didn't have the people because uh, 30 years of Washington consensus, I wanted to say to Donko that his parents grew up under structural adjustment and the IMF. Well, I grew up under structural adjustment and the IMF, Dongo. My entire adolescence and childhood was uh, one IMF pro program after another. But yeah, so this is this is this is the important bit, right? It, it's it's not just that you're subsidizing financial capital; it is that you're redirecting resources from the the welfare state towards the de-risking state. And I think to to me, as as a as a trade union member, as a a progressive economist, I want to think of ways in which the welfare state can be improved, in which the the industrial state can can be revived, not the ways in which my pension fund can give money to BlackRock to invest in some SDG project in some African country from, from which my pension fund will not see much return, but the BlackRock managers probably will. Well, maybe just to say some words about the, 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 power, the power dynamics, because um, as Daniela state, you could have the logic of, of private finance. Uh, needing uh, the risking from 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 the state from states in in, in general, but uh, uh, next to the logic of uh, private finance, uh, I would say you have also the territorial logic of the states. For example, the imperial states, dominant states, 
hegemonic states like for example france the us and etc for example in the case of africa you will see that is a uh, korean somehow with uh, an ambition to um, let's say to, to to compete with china in africa that means for example you have a blending of different types of of, of capitals public capitals uh, private capitals but capitals coming from many different places you see and uh, this is a way of saying that well uh, we in the european union we in france or i don't know in the uk in the us we want to provide you with um, better infrastructure project better financing uh, which uh, will be let's say better for you compared to what you receive from china because uh, as as we know uh, china now is the first bilateral lender of the continent but also the first trade partner of the continent so all this uh, this this new uh, philosophy this uh, washington wall street consensus uh, somehow is embedded also uh within uh let's say diplomatic uh, territorial ambitions of the of the west i do not i do not say that uh china is exempt of any form of uh, the risking but the thing is that uh this uh way of uh, thinking about development is mobilized also for other uh, let's say state uh agenda and that also very important to to factor in and the thing is also as daniela said about the technocratic side of the thing the wall street consensus is um reshaping the um, let's say the the the, the all the technocratic structure because uh now you will see that in our countries the the world banks of the multilateral development banks etc they only want to talk with people who understand economics and finance that means not people like us because we are heterodox but uh, people from their own background that is you come from the world bank you come from the african development bank etc so you will see that more and more the type of leadership we have is people who came from uh, this background let's say international financial institution you will have a prime minister you have a president a minister of finance coming from the world bank or the african development bank because they know the the language and if you look also at the um, structures uh, the institutions domestic institutions let's say are focused on dealing with investors they also generally come from this kind of of background and you see uh, those people generally they are they are not nationalized i i am not using nationalized in a let's say in a xenophobic or let's say non progressive sense but to say that they will prefer to serve the interest of those foreign investors instead uh, the development needs of their countries because they know that one day they will leave their their position in in uh, in Africa to go for example to the world bank or to the imf and so on so uh, i see many people like that who are uh, generally handle the economic policy the investment policy of 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 our countries that means that uh, all the, the the policy making institutions are reshaped uh, to a uh, street the, the desires of um, of foreign investors so there are many 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 different power 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 logics and uh, you could not say that there is only one 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 power logic but different different stance and at different scales you sorry if i just may add one thing uh, you just reminded me dongo that i dream of somebody doing research on um, so speaking of these different power dynamics i think it also alters the the the, the power uh, dynamics between the government and local capital i'm thinking of the example of nigeria and the dangote group 
I don't know if I pronounce it correctly, but the Dangote group in Nigeria is now, at least from my reading of the, UNA, the UNECA documents, is now embracing the, the de-risking approach, at least in, in health, in PPPs in health. That also means in some ways that if the successful developmental state of the 1950s and 1960s managed to create alliances with domestic capital in order to go up value chains, if your domestic capital is playing the de-risking game now, it would be quite difficult to reorient it towards a more sort of traditional developmental strategy that doesn't emphasize, you know, uh, the risking, but emphasizes instead domestic industrial capacity. But I, I mean, I just have some some indications or some some signals that this could be interesting. I, I don't know anybody who works on it, but it, it might be, it's just me that is not uh, uh, aware of that. That's a pretty unimpressive take on um, how well we're doing right now, right? The present leaves a lot to be desired. Where is all this going in the future? Uh, one particularly ominous thing that Danielle has written about is the securitization of sustainability. So big private investors are arguing that private capital can be an effective partner in the pursuit of the so-called sustainable development goals or SDGs that are a major part of global collaboration on climate crisis. Um, but maybe, Daniela has suggested, this will instead lead to SDG washing. Capital is going to exploit the ambiguities between different definitions of sustainability to do the thing that we've been talking about for the last few minutes, which is secure returns to investors without any guarantees about environmental progress or genuine provision of public services, anything like that. So I want to ask both of you the question that Daniela herself asked in the concluding section of securitization for sustainability. What kind of development would securitization finance and why? Well, I mean, let me just start by saying, I mean, securitization is a particular uh, uh, instrument or a particular mechanism to create the kind of assets that institutional investors want to have or, or prefer, right? So it's there is nothing, uh, I mean, people people know of it because of, of the role the securitization played in the global financial crisis when there was the sec securitization of sub subprime mortgages. I would just argue, I mean, securitization is part of the both the vocabulary and the instruments of the of the Wall Street consensus. And there is a lot of, as you said, there is a, a lot of both greenwashing and SDG washing in there. And, and I think this is probably the, what grates me most about or what irritates me most about uh, the rhetoric of the Wall Street consensus. Uh, it is also this kind of self-righteous, this morally superior uh, rhetoric of if we if we align through these partnerships, if we align private capital with a de-risking state, then we will deliver on the sustainable development goals. Then we will have the low carbon transition. Then we will green our financial system and our economy. And in some ways, you know, that is for, for a progressive agenda, it's both irritating and challenging because what do you do when you're, in a sense, your class enemy uses the same rhetoric that you do, right? So we we don't, we are not at the stage anymore, at least in the Washington consensus, your, your enemies spoke a different language than you did. And then you would say, okay, we want either more state or we don't think that that capitalism works and we need a different kind of political system. You had a different language. Now we at least... 
I would say for people who, and I not count myself among those, for people who are not uh, overtly anti-capitalist, and I, I cannot be because I grew up in under under central planning and I, I have limits to my imagination as it would be. But but now the, the difficulty is for being a progressive uh, economist within a capitalist logic is that your, your, your class enemy speaks the same language as you do. So then in order to, to make clear the differences, you have to do one hour and a half of a podcast where you explain the technicalities behind the rhetoric and behind the discourse, right? And to say, when they talk about partnerships, what they mean is Preston Wood for asset managers. What they mean is less access to free public services. What they mean is the same monetary and fiscal austerity, except for us. We get support, we get monetary abundance, we get fiscal abundance. So, and, and I think that raises some very significant rhetorical and polit- or, or discursive challenges for progressives. And but, but there are also even more complicated structural challenges. And I've discussed this with people over time. And, and I think if to change the status quo, we need to change how finance works to, to go to at least some of the Keynesian ideas of the that were behind the negotiations of the Bretton Woods, which was that you need a lot you need to repress finance as the US did repress this market-based financial system in the 1930s. It did it with maybe it was a historical accident and it will never repeat itself. But what we need what, what needs to happen for this political project to be derailed one way or another of the political project of the Wall Street consensus is that we we need to change the, the structures of globalized finance. And so far, not even I would I had expected the the, the the global pandemic to provide some impetus for a change in the status quo, right? Because governments all of a sudden had to stop to break to, to stop things and to to close things down. And you say, well if they could stop society from going to work and de-risk Basically, they de-risked for everybody. If you could think in many ways, economic policy in in the COVID-19 pandemic was de-risking for capitalism, for capitalists and for workers. But I'm now, I think I was very optimistic and and it's not possible. Uh, Political change is is not going to happen in the way that we would like to now because it would mean nationalizing pension funds. It would mean nationalizing insurance companies. It would mean uh, nationalizing a 10 trillion US dollar asset manager. I mean, from where does the politics come for, for that? I don't know. But maybe maybe just countries in the global south could do it differently. I'm speaking here as somebody who lives in a former metropolis, um, and I'm not very optimistic. In, in fact, well, when we see what, what happened during this, this pandemic, I think that you could say that Daniela is right to say that, well, uh, we could not be too hopeful about, let's say, some kind of revolutionary dynamics in the in the, in the global north, because if uh, the global south, or if you wanted to tackle this pandemic, we know that well, maybe uh, all the global south should have access to the vaccines. Uh, the vaccines have been freely made uh, available to the manufacturers by the states because it has been subsidized a lot by by the states. For example, Moderna did not pay anything for the research and so on. But when I say I, I exaggerate a bit, but they receive a lot of subsidies to, to, to create that, you know. And uh, most of the, um, the initial research was public, pu- public research, you know. And despite that, uh, those vaccines have not been uh, made available to the global south. I mean, in the quantities needed and also at affordable prices. While the let's say the world system, I mean the, the world could afford that, but this has not been the case. And uh, this, this pandemic is really a uh, well, s- small thing 
compare, compared to the uh, issue related to climate change. So if you just look at it, what happened during the last two years, you can have a glimpse of what, what, what we could re realistically expect from the Global North. That means that uh, the Global South has to try to uh, unite into, and to propose something else. Bandung Woods, I don't know, but to propose something else. Uh, because the vested powers we have in the Global North are so important that uh, what can only exist for me in the in the global north is um, paralysis, paralysis, political paralysis, but not genuine change. And if you see, this is something really ironic because uh, this guy Francis Fukuyama, I think in, in 2010 or 2011, he wrote uh, an article in the Financial Times saying that well, the U.S. has no uh, lesson to give to China about democracy and so on. You know, this guy who was talking about the end of history, liberal democracy, and so on. And what he was saying basically was that, well, the U.S. democracy can only function in one direction. That means for the oligarchy. That means, yeah, for the 1%. So mm. if, if the U.S. democracy functions, that means it's function for the 1%. Mm. If it doesn't function for the 1%, it's the political mm. paralysis, you see. And I would say that is mm. same thing, more or less, uh, across the, 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 the global north. That means that the global south have to have another strategy, because one thing I I, I like a lot about um, uh, modern monetary theory MMT uh, is the idea that what what is technically possible <laughs> could be uh, financed domestically, and I think this is a very empowering message, because that means that you have to conceive of your development differently. That means that those old debates about the appropriate technologies. That has to be, uh, let's say, revived because we are not uh, obliged to use the technology coming from the global north. Maybe they are much more efficient, etc. But maybe that would expose us uh, in terms of financial dependency, technological dependency, and so on. Uh, in this current period, what we need is a form of critical imagination, imagining things differently. Because I believe that uh, the kind of uh, prosperity we need in the global south has to be something different from what has been achieved in, in the global north. Because what has been achieved in the global north, we could all observe it, is based on very particular, let's say, historical conditions, but also an ecological exceptionalism. So we have, uh, we could not emulate that because it's not possible, because it would only bring a civilizational collapse. But that means that we have to think differently. And one of the things that the, this uh, Washington, the Wall Street consensus, uh, the, the G7, G8, what, what they do not say is that, for example, in this current world, we are still in a world where there are net uh, monetary flows from the global south to the global north and net flows of biophysical resources from the global uh, south to the global north. So whatever they take as a policy measures uh, that does not address uh, this structural phenomenon, will not uh, allow us to go through a world where we collectively will be able to tackle climate change and create uh, prosperity for, for, for everybody. So there are structural issues uh, which are never addressed. And that is really important because part of the solutions should come from, from within. That means from, from, from the global south with, uh, let's say, alternative financing structures, alternative technologies, and alternative way of uh, defining prosperity, wealth, etc., development. You know, we we were so close. We almost got through this without anyone mentioning MMT. 
but don't go. You have, <laughs> you have opened you've opened the gate, so I'm gonna. I want it to be provocative <laughs> and also. To... I am. I am. <laughs> I am Daniela. not fighting. Uh, my MMT is a very important ally. I have MMT friends. Uh, you know how they say, right? <laughs> I have, I, I, well, Dogo is an MMT friend, uh, but yes. I, I I fully I fully subscribed to the optimistic message that uh, countries in the global south should not take lessons from countries in the global north of either how to carve uh, socioeconomic trajectories or how to ruin the environment for everybody. I mean, I would just say this that we have we have to, we, we shouldn't underestimate the the challenges of designing alternatives. Uh, and having a, an economic theory that tells you you can you can regain monetary sovereignty is a first step, but many others need to need to be taken uh, for us to be able to do that. And I just wanted to to re- ask you, Femi, whether you are more confident than we are, because I've read your recent piece in the Guardian, the co-authored piece, and and it it sounded to me as an optimistic piece. Uh, I would say in many ways uh, this idea that if we just reorient uh, SDRs, the, the surplus SDRs that uh, rich countries got because exactly of the way in which Bretton Woods was designed for for, for the uh, in former colonial stru- colony, well, for the metropolis, then I think I read I read it as an optimistic take. Um, I am more pessimistic on, pessimistic on that, but uh, that's me. I don't know if I would think of my take as optimistic, but... I think something similar to what Dongo said earlier, which is it would be good for there to be something like a Bandung Woods conference, right? Things like MMT discussions about development have taken their cues from a really historically exceptional path to development, ongoing ideologies of ecological exceptionalism, right? And so if we were going to design something different, you know, what would be the material conditions the financial conditions that would make it possible to execute that vision. And the SDRs just seems like one potential answer to it. Maybe there's better ones. I don't, I don't know better ones myself, but um, so I'm, I'm more thinking about what would need to be in place rather than, you know, betting on what will be in place or what the SMS will do. But, but I do want to, I do want to follow up on this bit about exceptionalism Right. Maybe MMT is the answer. Maybe something else is the answer. But maybe this constituent idea of economic sovereignty and monetary sovereignty, what does that look like in a world that would have a Bad Doug Woods conference? So if we had MMT like ideas about maybe a developmental state instead of the de risking state or you know, somehow using some set of institutions, maybe the state, maybe another set, to pursue the kind of developmental and ecological goals that are compatible with continued life on this planet on anything like just terms, maybe even terms of solidarity. What kinds of economic thoughts would be foundational to a conference like that? And Dongo, why do you think MMT gives us tools for thinking about that. And Daniela, why don't you? The kid does. Daniela is sympathetic to, to MMT, so she's not an, an, an enemy of, of MMT, but maybe she has much more nuanced, uh, let's say, arguments about uh, MMT. 
Well, uh, my, 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 my positions, I would say, derives from uh, two, two offers that have uh, influenced me a lot. Uh, Celso Furtado, the Brazilian economist, and, and Sami Lamin. Uh, Celso Furtado wrote a book uh, in 1974 called uh, The Myth of Economic Development. It has been translated into English uh, two, two years ago. And it's a very important book. And, well, his argument in this book is that, well, if we try to emulate the West, in fact, uh, this will lead to civilizational collapse because the development of the West uh, have been based on the appropriation, net appropriation of the resources of the global South. Uh, that, that is not his word. I think they would word, uh, use the word third word at that, at that time, you see. Uh, and also, uh, the thing is that uh, the type of industrialization we had in the global north, we could not have it in the global south. And he took the example of, of Brazil because Brazil had a very important period of industrialization, let's say between uh, in the 19th century, um, 1920 and 1980s. It was a strong period of, let's say, industrial development. But this industrialization uh, did not create prosperity in the West because it was just a kind of industrialization based on import uh, substitution, but also the creation of products that would be, let's say, luxury products in the sense that they would be consumed only by a minority of the population. So that, that created a very skewed pa pattern of um, industrialization with a lot of inequalities and um, a lack of uh, homogeneity let's say, in, in the population, because in the in the West you have, for example, some kind of um, let's say homogeneity, because most people are wage earners, etc. They have stable income and and, and and so on, and so that was his argument, saying that well, we have to have something else because obviously we could not emulate the, the West, and that was also a type of argument used by by Samir Amin. I think that is the most important argument made by dependency theory and, and the likes. Uh, Sami Amin was saying that if you want to have, uh, let's say, let's say someone in, uh, in Niger or in the Republic of Central Africa wants to have the same income, let's say, let's say compared to someone in Europe or, or in New York, we would, would need, uh, let's say, five new Americas, five news. That means empty places where we would uh, put people to, to be there. That means that the idea of economic catching up it's not realistic. It's not possible. But that does not mean that people are doomed to poverty, inequality, and so on. That means that they have to find something else because the development model of the West is based on ex ecological exceptionalism, but it's so is based on uh, a waste of resources. That means if you want to catch up with, let's say, the average New Yorker, you have also to catch up in terms of waste of resources, but you can't, you see. So that means that you have to find some, some, something else. And that, 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 that is the agenda uh, behind delinking. When he says delinking, it's not a way of saying that we are preaching autarky, but we have to redefine the relationships between the domestic economy and the world economy. So, for example, one aspect of delinking is what Daniela says about uh, we have to tame global finance. We have to have uh, domestic finance. And if we have foreign finance, that should help, let's say, improve domestic capacities and so on. But we know that this is not um, easy because you have to find uh, the right alliances inside the, the country so that to be able to, to have this agenda of delinking. Because the agenda of delinking is just, let's say, a kind of period. You could say that China delinked after the Second World War until 1980s. 
So you, you need that kind of, um, let's say, uh, political alliances in order to have such a kind of program. And where, where I find uh, MMT, uh, let's say, coherent with uh, this kind of uh, thinking is that, well, the, the, the dependency theories and so on, they did not talk about monetary banking aspects, etc. And uh, what is important about MMT, MMT for me is not a, a theory about uh, monetary sovereignty. They only talk of monetary sovereignty as the capacity of the sovereign issue of the currency to pay uh, its obligation in its own currency. So it's a sovereignty, monetary sovereignty, as ability to pay for the sovereign currency issuer. But there are other aspects of monetary sovereignty, for example, which are not taken into account, for example, in the monetary literature. For example, if you uh, see, us, for example, the work of Samir Amin, because at one point he was advising government in West Africa to delete from the CFA franc, he was saying that, well, if you have your own national currency and you don't control the banking sector and the financial sector, well, you don't have a, a national currency. It's not a national currency. So it can't work. You can't delay, you see. So that means that you have to take into account the, the banking sector. You have to, as Daniela said, financial repression. I know they, they neoclassical use that to say that it's bad, but it's, you have to have some kind of financial repression. We, we are going to create credits. We are going to allocate savings to some particular industries, etc. We are going to avoid, let's say, luxury consumption, etc. So you have this, this additional layer, which is, I think, beyond MMT. It's not uh, in contradiction with MMT, but it's another layer. You have also the technical layer that means that, for example, if you want to have, let's say, domestic monetary sovereignty, you have to have the capacities, the technical capacities. For example, you have to have to uh, one way of controlling uh, all the electronic devices you use, all the payment system, etc. You have have to wait of building all those all those capacities. And there is also another layer which is important when we discuss also about the STRs, is that well the monetary system we have internationally is a non-system because it doesn't work for the for the for the global global south. And uh, one 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 aspect of this uh, pathology is the fact that well when you want to that, that is what Keynes called the, the transfer problem. It, it, it's, it's one aspect of what Keynes called the transfer problem. That means for them, if you have your local currency, you, you, you are in Guinea, you have your Guinean franc, and you want to buy goods uh, abroad, normally you, you, you need US dollars, you see, or you need euros, you need hard, hard, hard currency. But in this uh, international monetary system, there is not a free mechanism of converting, let's say, currencies uh, of converting sovereign currencies. So that means that uh, those who are at the bottom of the monetary hierarchy, they tend to suffer from that situation. And uh, the proposals made by Keynes, uh, made also Schumacher and many other people, is a way of finding a good international payment system which will improve trade relationships between countries and also create the condition of, of, of full unemployment. This is another layer of, of, sover of sovereignty, but that means that this kind of layer is much more complicated because you have to have a new bundle woods that would help create the condition uh, where the developing countries, the global south, will not suffer from this transfer problem. So for me, a monetary sovereignty could refer to many different things. And the ability of the sovereign to pay in its own domestic currency is really important. When we understand that, it's important to understand it, to see that technical constraints are much more constraining than financial constraints. And from there, there are many possibilities we could 
build because many people have already reflected on, let's say, progressive policy measures. But it's important to to have this uh, this MMT lens as a way of, um, let's say, going against some myths about, uh, let's say, the deficits and, and so on. I, I, for a for a second, Dongo, I thought you were adding an M to MMT with this Maoist MMT take, which I thought was <laughs> kind of a, an interesting proposal. I still have not worked out by the end of your interview whether you're going to stick with capitalism or not for your alternative system. But um, I'm guessing you would stay within some form of capitalist organization. Well, it, it depends by what you mean capitalism, but this is another <laughs> the subject of another talk, maybe. <laughs> Capitalism for the poor and don't go. Can we can we have that the system of capitalism? Uh, so MMT with Maoist characteristics. <laughs> yes, exactly. Well, you know, in, in in another part of my academic life, where we started to discuss Leninism as a insightful for discussions about designing low carbon transition. So nothing surprises me anymore. I would say, <laughs> and and just to clarify, I am not uh, taking a I'm not taking a stance against MMT, and in many ways when. I think people criticize MMT for not being relevant for uh, low and middle income countries. And I think in many ways it could be much more powerful there than than in, in high income countries for the reasons that Ndongo explained very well. Also because it's not associated with tax evading billionaires in, in those countries in, uh, in in many ways. But and I'm not sure that I I think either Ndongo or I have it clear what exactly this system or this different or alternative to what we have now would look like. And, and maybe it's not up to us to, to design that in advance. I think it's quite difficult to imagine it because living in, in, a, in a different system where you, that does not benefit from ecological um, exceptionalism is quite difficult to imagine, right? After, after having grown up and, and, and lived with some of the benefits that we have. And so maybe it is my privileged position as a, an academic in a, uh, in a high income country that, that stops me from thinking about what would the alternative look like. But for me, the one thing is very clear that it has to have the state there. So I, I, I cannot imagine of alternatives that, that give up the state as, a, as, as the entity that can organize the alternative. Uh, but, but that's, I don't know whether that's a limit. I would say the MMT probably, the, uh, the MM, MMTR, not the Maoist, and Dongo, won't give up the, won't give up the state either. But how how you create domestic political consensus? I am I am more skeptical now after two years of COVID because, in so many ways, the the, the political differences have sharpened so much, uh, and and it made me more skeptical than than I was before the the pandemic about our ability to to sell alternative political projects to the population, and and I think it it requires governments that are very competent that we. We don't seem to have that now. It doesn't mean that we can't have them, but it means that in a sense, maybe the, the, the burden is, is clearer and the, the task is, is clearer and, and, and more demanding that we have to prepare better. And I think the left is never prepared for the, the, the strategic moment when it takes power. And this reminds me of reading a, a speech by Lenin uh, when he's trying to work out, OK, so now we are in power. What do we do? And he said, well, look, let's look at social de- democracy and just have like, you know, the bureaucrats of the of the capital of capitalism, but just put them under the control of the of, of workers committees. So maybe for the next revolution, we will be better prepared with alternatives. Uh, and then I, I'll stop there. I, I will add this one thing is that, well, uh, we have to think about alternatives. That's important because that could, let's say, throw. Uh, the space of what is possible. What will happen will depend on the struggles, social struggles, political struggles. 
that's how history works. History is not made uh, by the um, through the thinking of big thinkers, but uh, through struggles. So that means that some people will think about, let's say, wonderful alternatives, but those wonderful alternatives will never happen. But people could arrive at um, compromises which are progressive for 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 for, for the majority. And generally, the for me the most uh, important example, one of the most eloquent example, is the abolition of of uh, of slavery in, in in the U.S. You see, you had uh, very very radical people, but uh, at one point. Uh, let's say people would never accept that, but because there was this uh, radical alternative saying that we have to uh, let's say abolish slavery, at one point uh, even people who are opposed to that was obliged somehow to trust somebody like uh, Abraham Lincoln to say that well you see in Lincoln we could have some trust to in order to to change a, a bit things, but at one point even Abraham Lincoln. Could not do nothing against the move, this movement to to uh, to abolition slavery. So that means that the role of uh, critical thinkers is to provide critical alternatives, and generally those critical alternatives could not be applied in the present, and it is will be only through struggles that 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 thing will happen. But struggles will be progressive in their outcomes if those critical alternatives are already present. I can't think of a better point to end on. So. Dongo Sambosila, Daniela Gabor, thank you for coming to the dig. Many thanks, Femi. This was a very, very interesting conversation and uh, far more uh, in-depth and detailed than, than I expected, but it was great. Thank you. Yeah, yeah it was really great and challenging too. <laughs> Daniela Gabor is professor of economics and microfinance at the University of the West of England, Bristol, and has published on central banking and crisis, on the governance of global banks, in the IMF, and on shadow banking and repo markets. Dongo Sambasilla is a development economist and a founding member of the Collective for the Renewal of Africa, CORA. He frequently publishes on monetary policy, colonialism, and their intersection. He is a co-author of the book, Africa's Last Colonial Currency, The CFA Frank Story. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said, after noting that, under their money form, all commodities look alike. While other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We're posting new episodes every week. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis and recorded at WBRU in Providence. Music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Our communications coordinators are Tamuz Frankel and Gemma Sack. Our senior advisor is Theo Rio Francos. Check out our vast archives at thedigradio.com. Follow us on Twitter at thedigradio, and please find us wherever you get podcasts and subscribe. If it's on iTunes, you can also leave us a glowing review. Those reviews help introduce us to new listeners, which is great. But what really does that is you just telling other people about the podcast, why you like it, why they'll like it, etc. Please do make propaganda for us. And please, last but by no means least, find us at patreon.com slash the dig and make a monthly contribution to keep this podcast up and running strong. Even a few bucks a month is huge. Mm-hmm.